The stories we tell are more than just fantasy. They shape and they mould, they inform our reality. The way that we think, the way that we act, the way that we show up in this world. Every choice that we make is related to the stories that we tell. Love stories, horror stories, stories of greed, stories of power that make us believe that we aren't in intimate connection with the birds in the skies or the fish in the seas, that we don't change with the seasons, that we don't grow with the trees. There's poison in our waters and the air that we breathe, the sickness, the illness, can you feel the dis-ease? Well if you can, then it's time to reimagine our stories, to let go of the antiquated, to bathe in the glory of the unknown, of the new, of the sacred, of the true, to tell tales of kinship between me, between you, between all life on this planet, this is what we must do. When they no longer serve us, our stories become worthless. We need stories from the heart. We need stories of service that redefine our purpose. So let's start with a blank page. Let's rewrite this age. Let our stories give us courage. Let our stories speak of change. You're listening to the Spaceship Earth podcast with me, Dan Burgess. The story of Spaceship Earth is simple. We live on a life-giving rock called Earth, hurtling through space. Like a spaceship, we have a finite amount of supplies with an intelligent operating system called Nature, which keeps everything replenished as long as we all respect it and participate wisely. So a deep relationship with this mysterious system, along with spontaneous cooperation between humans and all life, is essential to keep us thriving and the spaceship flying. In this podcast, I'm in conversation with folk involved in regenerating life, shifting consciousness and reimagining how we can live more beautifully and peacefully. I talk with artists, writers, activists, designers, adventurers, healers, farmers, creative mavericks and more. Their stories invite us to participate in the co-creation of life-sustaining cultures. In service to life, becoming crew on Spaceship Earth. Greetings Earthling, this is Dan. Uh, Welcome to the Spaceship Earth podcast. Uh, We really appreciate you tuning in and being here. This episode is a bit special. Uh, Those words you just heard in the introduction were from the wonderful Mark the Lissa, poet and becoming crew guide. Um, And this episode has been created to honour the remix, our recent three-month experiential unlearning adventure from Becoming Crew. Now, the remix set out to explore the power of cultural stories in these times and not in a shiny, universal, human-centered way. It was an invitation into a deep, creative, relational inquiry 
uh, exploring the cultural stories we live by, while at the same time re-entangling ourselves back into the vast web of life, the world we have not made. The remix uh, was an intentional space to explore the intelligence, interconnectedness, kinship and mystery of life on this earth and how that might shape and inform our creative practices and projects. Uh, the adventure departed in May and we came back to these shores at the end of July. 37 crew from eight countries uh, participated, guided by myself and fellow guides Eva Semenovich, Mark Sears, Mark Delissa and Kamara Venner. We were joined uh, along the way by seven guest teachers at Bio Akomolafe, Paddy Lauman, Phoebe Tikel, Felipe Viveros, uh, Jay Griffiths, Iski Britton and Sophie Strand. And together we weaved a peer-supported action learning community, cultivating deep entanglement practices with the more than human world in the places we call home, participating in creative challenges and experiments while considering how might our stories help to seed and grow life-sustaining cultures. Stories that help us remember where we come from. Stories that help us imagine what could be. Stories of endings and letting go. Stories of becoming. Stories that remix ancient and modern knowing. Stories of our entanglement with the great mystery of life. Stories for life. This episode is an artefact of that journey. It uh, weaves contributions from guests, guides and participants. It's a memory bank for us uh, to remember the wisdom, connections and learning we received. We hope that by sharing this, you too can receive a taster of the Remix Wonder. We're currently planning the Remix 2024. Um, register to our infrequent newsletter to find out about that so with that let us begin and tune in to the vibes of the remix 2023 you're listening to the spaceship earth podcast with my dad dan burgess we set sail metaphorically at the beginning of may with ever welcoming us aboard. In a moment, we'll do some introductions and we'll tell you a little bit about what's happening tonight. But in this, in this moment, as we're gathering for the first time, I just want to invite us to be in the moment of being here and about to step into something and seeing each other for the first time. So maybe Maybe taking a look, like who's who's here, who's with me, who's beside me. Maybe taking a moment to also notice what's here for you in your body, what you're sensing, what you're feeling, the excitement, and giddiness, or nervousness, or maybe you're totally chill and 
Whatever it is, what is it that you're sensing? Because we are about to step into something together. So I just want to mark that moment or invite us to mark that moment. Um, so I invite you to, to close your eyes or keep your gaze soft for this next part. And you can do it sitting down as you are, or if it's accessible in your body and you feel like it, you can stand up for this moment. Taking a big breath together, inhale. And allow the belly to expand, allow the chest to expand and exhale. I'm here, I'm here right now. And as we are about to step into something together, I invite you to, in your mind's eye, envision a threshold. That threshold could be the door, it could be clearing in the woods, it could be cave or some crazy intergalactic portal. Just envision a threshold right in front of you. In a moment, we're going to step into, step through that threshold together. So, take a breath together. And after that breath, and I invite you to actually physically do it. You may want to take a step forward maybe jump into it or crawl into your threshold, whatever your threshold looks like and whatever it's calling you to do, I invite you to do it or simply envision, visualize yourself doing it. So we'll take a big breath together. And then step into the threshold. After our opening ceremony, we were joined by philosopher, writer and post-activist Bio Akomolafe. I can think of no one better to load us up with provocation and wisdom as we cross the threshold from the realities of modernity and set sail. Bio warned us that stories are not the full story. To open up and come into touch with what's not yet storied, to practice bewilderment and explore new, unfamiliar relationships with the world around us. Um, Yes, but I'm grateful and I thank you for the invitation to, to, to be here. I felt at one moment, as you were describing departures, um, my mind drifted to the stunning departures of the transatlantic slave trade, the departures from the Bight of Benin, the departures from the slave ports of those shores, right? And how um, those departures were stories of capture. There were stories of, of inadequacy. There were stories of the triumphalism of humanity, right? Where the human is the slaver and 
the less than human is where the where the black bodies seized from the African continent. And one particular story about that story says, um, written by Femi Yuba, who's a he's a playwright from Nigeria. Um, and his story about that event, those events have become well, popular to those who are interested in these kinds of things. His story is the trickster that, you know, was a stowaway that snuck onto the slave ship. I love that story um, because of the because of what it tells me about the partiality of the world. By partiality, I mean not being partial of something, not not a moral formulation, but how the world is not fully intelligible to us. Let me put it this way. A dear sister of mine said to me once about a culture in the Americas that an indigenous nation, that they say that there are 99 senses. There are 99 senses, um, not just five, not just the Aristotelian five senses, but there are 99 senses. Making sense of the world is only one of them. Right, making sense of the world is only one of them. I used to be a social constructivist, which is a fancy name for a scholar that believes that everything is reducible to story. That all we need to do is to happen upon a different story. If we want to address climate chaos, well, craft a different story. If we want to uh, address racial injustice, well, craft a different story. It comes down to stories. Stories have a hold on us, right? And while that is true, it doesn't seem entirely so. It seems that there are other matters afoot when it comes to how the world worlds itself, right? So that in a sense, stories are the partial intelligibility of the world. Right. right. It's how we come to meet each other, not in a totalizing way, not in a final way, but the invitation there is one of humility, that there are other things that escape our stories. There are worlds outside of our grammar and our linguistic constructions that are powerful agents that will not be gentrified in our search for meaning, that will not be incarcerated by our linguistic structures, the subject, verb, and object dynamic, that there are worlds outside of story. So we need new stories, but new stories are not entirely left to us, right? So this is my offering as we leave the, these shores then in search of new stories. The invitation is to listen and to be in touch with the thing that is not yet storied, um, to, to, to listen and to, and to come in touch. Maybe I'll put it that way, to come in touch and to um, allow ourselves to be met um, and to open ourselves to strange encounters. Maybe then the terms and the words and the phrases and the sentences for new stories will happen to us. The orientation here is to be humble, is to stay with the trouble of humility that we will not know, that what comes next is not left to us to know. Can we stay with the unknowing? So you might think that's a shriveled space, unknowing, but I think it's a very abundant 
place to be in. Like there are so many stories to, to be told now with uncertainty and the lack of confidence and the loss of um, certitude that are waiting to be told. We then familiarized ourselves with the Stories for Life work with a session uh, from my co-author Paddy Lauman. Here we explored the proposition of stories as powerful technologies for these times, introducing the framework of love stories and horror stories designed to help us notice the deeply ingrained often destructive and divisive stories of modernity that are present around us and within us, that are seldom questioned, that keep us charging along, too often oblivious to their impacts and increasingly their absurdities in the context of these times. So first thing we're going to talk about is stories and this fundamental role that they play in shaping our reality, our perception of it. Now we are all storytellers, is an innate human practice and tool, one of the defining features of our species. It's easy to downplay stories as merely entertainment or news fodder, fluff that's designed to amuse us or distract us or pacify us. In many ways, certainly in Western cultures, this is exactly what they are designed to do. But as science now realizes, stories are the way that we think about process and learn information. Stories are mental models, shaping how we think, feel, and act every day. And even the fluff is doing this shaping. As the filmmaker Jean-Luc Godard put it, reality is complex, stories give it form. And crucially, therefore, they also help us give it meaning. Bio says this is hugely limited. And he's absolutely right, of course. I like to think about the light spectrum with that in mind. I think the light spectrum, as you think about it, is sort of this wide, and our eyes allow us to see this, right? So there's all of this that we're not seeing, and the same is kind of true here with stories. But this is happening. This is stories of all kinds in all forms, from our myths, our legends, our parables, and fairy tales to our textbooks, blockbusters, taglines, and headlines. From the physical design of our cities and what that tells us about things, relationships, and values, to the design of our digital products, services, and experiences. You might say that stories are a bit like coding, that programs what we believe, what we choose, and who we decide to be, and therefore ultimately everything we do. This makes them an extremely powerful technology. As a proverb from the Hopi community explains it, the one who tells the story rules the world. We are the reaction of strange encounters, the howl of the wolf, the meander of rivers. To see the flower bloom is to remember ourselves. And when the leaves fall away from the trees, we are reminded that one day we will leave this world. And it will still spin and it will still turn when we have returned to the dirt. We give our flesh to the worms, our gift to the earth. We are made and unmade, death and rebirth. The procession of the moon, the cycle of the seasons, the migration of birds, the tide and its patterns. We come and we go. We are not the centre of these stories. Stars will still be born once we've vacated our bodies. These stories tell us 
as much as we tell them. I wonder what stories will be told when our dream ends. We sat with renegade scientist, systems thinker and imagination activist Phoebe Tickell and her moral imaginations work, which she has been growing through the mentorship of Joanna Macy. Phoebe invited us to consider how might our stories help connect us to all life and extend our collective circles of concern to include past and future ancestors and our more than human family. Yeah, so so the name of the organisation is Moral Imaginations. And what we're trying to do is cultivate a movement of moral imagination. Um, and I, I start with that term moral imagination because when people hear the word morality or moral, they often have a bit of a flinch reaction um, because it has strong connotations with Christianity, with a sense of black or white, what's right, what's wrong, um, being moralistic. Um, and the way this term has come to mean so much to me and has and has been the term that I've kind of chosen to describe this work is that um, well, a couple of different things. One is imagination is powerful, but it can be used for positive or negative. So if we just talk about imagination without any bias, um, it's also the power of imagination that led us to create nuclear weapons um, on a vast scale. It's what's created, you know, racial apartheid was also imagination. Um, and the work that, you know, we, my organization and this growing movement are trying to do is to use the power of imagination for the benefit and welfare of all beings, of all human beings and all non-human beings and future generations. And so there is a deep moral aspect to it because it's about stepping up um, and and acting for not just ourselves, but also the the great the kind of whole, like the benefit of the whole, um, and included in that whole is people that you will never meet. And so sometimes when I'm working with um, working with a group right now in local council in Camden, one of the things really powerful things that um, the cohort that I'm working with said was like, the thing that really struck me is that we that the shift of mindset is to actually make decisions for people whose face I'll never see and who I'll never meet and who I'll never know um, and who exist in the future, but we'll never meet, but I know that they're coming. I know that, you know, they exist. And so that's where this this term moral imagination comes from um, in this, in the world of ethics and philosophy. Philosophers talk about the moral circle of concern, who is part of that circle who we choose to care about um and i would argue i mean right now when we when we do product design when we do service design when we make decisions of any kind you know whether that's at the scale of a personal decision or a family decision or you know national level political decision um there are so many stakeholders who are not part of that decision they're not considered um, and it's just really obvious because, you know, the non-human world is just not even considered. And so uh, another really big part of my work 
the, the moral imagination part, which I've just talked to you about, the other part, which again, I've just got to like really hat tip to Dan because it really crystallized in um, our conversation on on um, Spaceship Earth was this idea of imagination activism, which has really like taken hold and we've um, we've created a program around it that we're training council officers in the in the skills of imagination activism. But at the core of imagination activism, is a reframe around activism. So activism in its traditional form is the kind of guilt guilt and shame and blame and the kind of, you know, talking to a corporate like that. My old programming as an activist myself was going, beep, 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 you are really bad. <laughs> you should feel really guilty. Basically, that whole concept of imagination activism has been like a reframe and a kind of... Um, yeah, like an inversion of what it means to be an activist. There's a kind of there's a kind of departure that we re- that I believe we really need to make at the moment from finger pointing, blame, shame, activism, and and imagination activism basically invites people into a new form of activism, powered by imagination, powered by vision, and like kind of relentlessly. Um, not not like ungrounded optimism, but relentlessly kind of optimistic of like we we can and we must do our best with what we've got right now. And we're going to take a really short little journey in this moment across space and beyond time and really come to feel into the fact that life is all about cooperation and symbiosis and relationship. It's not about competition, reductionism and being an individual. Hopefully by the end of this, you'll be questioning what it really means to be an individual. So to start with, I'm going to ask you to focus in on all the bits of your body that are solid. We already started this. It means the bits of your body that create resistance, the sitting bones on your seat, the heavy weightiness of your body in all its mass, all its bone and muscle and blood and all its heaviness. Because you are a body or not just a mind, ideas and thoughts and chatter. And if you want, you can take your focus to your teeth as a very solid part of your body. You can give your teeth a little greeting with your tongue, run your tongue along your teeth. Just think of this actually like a a bone, stone-like part of your body and using your imagination can move in your mind's eye deeper into your body to your bones focusing on your rib cage imagining your spine all of the vertebrate vertebrates as they connect and join your pelvis Imagine your thigh bones and sitting in the sockets of your pelvis. 
And these bones that you're imagining that are there deep in your body, they're made of calcium carbonate. And the atoms in your bones are exactly the same atoms that make up the rocks and cliffs outside. So now take your focus from deep within your body for a second out into the world. Think about these rocks and cliffs. Think for a second of the white cliffs of Dover, huge rock that's been there for millions of years. The rock that's deep below our feet, the tectonic plates that move centimeters each year. And those white cliffs of Dover were created by millions of microorganisms that have broken down over millions of years. And those atoms are the very same atoms that make up your own bones. And in your bones somewhere, there's at least one atom that used to be a long time ago in the bones of a dinosaur. So just focus into that for a second. You literally share an atom, at least one, with the bones of a dinosaur. Who will speak for the earth, for the voices that go unheard, for the beings who do not talk in human tongues, of the myriad of species, we are but one. Who will sing the song of the rivers, who will articulate the utterance of the sea, who will make known the murmur of the mountain, who will enunciate the whisper of the breeze. We spent an evening with researcher, strategist and culture hacker Felipe Viveros exploring narratives for cultural revolutions. He encouraged us to tune in to the narratives and stories that shaped our younger lives which for many of us was very difficult and brought up quite a bit of grief. We then went on to consider what decolonizing and re-indigenizing ourselves might involve. Yeah, and, and so I just want to share this little song um, I learned many years ago, and it's a prayer and, uh, and an offering, and it's in Quechua. It speaks of... When we pray to Mother Earth, we remember our ancestors. Um, with our home and our community, we give thanks for our precious existence. Pachamama muchana pin Yuyarinchis mama taita and if you may um, just think about your who is your community, who is your sort of family, and uh, when we talk about ancestors, who comes to mind? Your grandma, your your mum. Um, 
yeah, who in in in, in is sort of present in your line. We have we have we have we have sort of like often yeah so many incredible conditions for our own kind of happiness and well-being, but we are not just aware because we are looking for for something else. So I think there's also as uh, to community, I think is the sense of like the source of or whatever you're gonna call it, connection and the this is the, the kinship, the kin question, like connecting to the land, connecting to ourselves, connecting to uh, the goddess, to God, to whatever we're going to call it, right? But the sense of like uh, the the sort of the source sort of question. Um, and I think, yeah, there is also something very sort of specific and not general at all. I, and I think... And I think you you frame it a little bit in your question than this question of like indigenous people are as diverse as the territories they inhabit, as the the flavors, the colors, the 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 songs, the 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 prayers, right? And I think this the same sort of like apply, apply with us and uh, to an extent, right? Um, and I think. Yeah, part of sort of like the seeds in terms of practices. I think it's also being able to, yeah, really, really find our own sort of unique uh, voice and gift and, and and sort of offering, however small or big or whatever, right? I think I think it's like the question is like how authentic it is, how we can constantly sort of like continue this process of becoming. And I think that's why I was also bringing Tyson Junka Porta into the question because the reality is like most of us live in cities. Most of us have been colonized. Most of us don't know our sort of ancestor past, whatever, two, three generations. There's, there's been so much sort of severing and, and that's, we are like colonized, our mind, our body, our land, everything is sort of being colonized, right? So I think, um, there is also, um, yeah, this question of, um, yeah, how do we, like, and, and kind of like decolonization, that it doesn't sound very appealing, <laughs> right? I need to decolonize myself. Great. No, you, you know, you don't have a T-shirt saying that, right? Uh, we, we are contextual beings and, and we need to really un understand, reckon, and uh, acknowledge our, our 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 realities, our context, and 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 and, and appreciate them with, with the contradictions, with the with the with the challenges, but also, yeah, understanding who we are. We live on a life-giving rock called Earth, hurtling through space. How bonkers is that? You're listening to the Spaceship Earth podcast. Writer and author Jay Griffiths introduced us to the misunderstood goddess of Nemesis and why Nemesis is our friend for these times, representing limits and balance and the laws of nature. She invited us to explore the distinction between what seems real in our lives and cultures and what it means to truly tell the truths of things. Jay encouraged the cohort to trust 
are individual and unique story truths that can help us through these destructive times and sow the seeds for life-sustaining cultures. The Inuit people need nemesis. Actually, we all do. But the dominant minority doesn't want her anywhere near them. Nemesis is the goddess for this moment. She's a goddess who gets a bad press. She's maligned and misunderstood. She's spoken of as if she were spiteful, vengeful and punitive, as if she relishes the retribution she serves. Not so. She's the goddess of limits. She represents divine justice, specifically the importance of respecting boundaries. If you cross the line, you break the laws that are inherent in physics and metaphysics alike. You will suffer nemesis, swift and certain. The teaching of nemesis is an ethics lesson taught in physics. Nemesis is a goddess of Greek myth. Her greatest gift is in setting implacable limits and then policing them. She's the goddess of balance, so needed on skating. In the Arctic, temperatures are rising fatally as the earth runs a fever. Ice disintegrates, wildfires burn across the tundra, permafrost melts. The perfectly balanced geography of the world with its ice cap at the north and south and the temperate and tropical zones between is thrown off balance. A new dissonance wrecks the harmony of eons. The rhythms are broken. Melodies howled out of tune. The seasons are colliding like delinquents, driving time into a vortex. The certain leaf-time knowledge of trees has turned to chaos. Birds starve in the confusion. The choreography of mating, flowering and egg-laying is smashed. The birds flee to nowhere. Their feathers scorch, they're dying on the wing. The roses are evicted. Butterflies are banished and a wren is flung out with the garbage. The flowers hate each other as they fight over one last bee. No one ever said we couldn't break the limits. No one said excess couldn't happen. No one ever said we couldn't act with the arrogance of hubris. But such transgressions are implacably punished. The laws of physics correspond to the laws of metaphysics. When mortals overstep the mark, they will be struck down. And justice is implicate with the laws of the universe. Even the sun is to pay. But no one and nothing is above the fundamental laws of nature. Natural laws are divine laws. Nemesis is our friend. She knows how things function well and how they malfunction. Animals like Nemesis. The living world is desperate for Nemesis to tug on her bridle and rein us humans in a little. If they could speak, imagine how the polar bears would plead with her. Step in, ma'am. Please tell these humans their unbridled sense of entitlement is going to kill us. Whales would want Nemesis to right the sense of a portion that gives to the sea creatures a chance of living in their living waters. The Amazon and everything it sustains would have given anything for the principle of due and right apportioning. It could have thrived forever without this one crazed subsection of humanity who recognised no limits. Nemesis, though, is viewed as vindictive, 
because modernity dislikes facing consequences, despises limits, loathes the idea of punishment and disdains boundaries. Collectively, we have come to feel entitled to live like gods, burning as much from the fossil fuel realm as we want, and heedless of the punishment it inflicts on generations to come and on the current generations of the unwealthy world. Because we don't like restrictions, we've turned a goddess of right limits and due care into a caricature of vengefulness. If I imagine Nemesis as a place, I picture the Arctic. It's a place of strict limit by virtue of the laws of nature. The limits of summer ice and winter sea ice dictate where people can travel, how they can travel, and if they can travel. The limits of temperature are the limits of life. If I hear the tone of voice of Nemesis, I hear the way Inuit people speak, strict with facts, rigorously honest. Life out on the ice depends on accuracy. Anything less is wrong and dangerous. And we're in a similar place in the world today. Ice is a good teacher. It teaches respects for the limits, the rules of safety, and for telling the truth. Yeah, I wonder just quickly, as you had, you know, you've talked a lot and you talk a lot about telling the truth. Um, and I guess, you know, this 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 group of us that are traveling on this remix journey are all you know, working with 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 our own stories, our, our own expressions, our own manifestations of these times and <clears throat> coming at coming at things from very different areas. But I guess uh, we're sort of moving into, a, I guess, in these last six weeks of really sort of encouraging everyone to really, yeah, to 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 work with their own truth, you know, to speak to it and not to um, not to um, hold back and feel that, you know, one's 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 work is not enough or do you know what I mean? It, 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 and I wonder as, as a writer that you are, whether you just had any kind of any words of wisdom or any thoughts just to leave people with as we as we as particularly in this moment, as we're speaking to about this, this necessity to, to speak. Do, do I have an opinion? Yes, I do, Dan. What it is, is, and it's, and I hope this might be a relatively consoling thing um, and a truthful one, is that um, sometimes when I've been writing, um, especially probably about, about eight, ten years ago, when I was just thinking, this climate, situation is like i have to write about it extinctions i have to write about this the sort of you know the state of everything i have to write about it and then i just kind of felt like you know it because it was so big and so complex and such a kind of you know and also so political because none of this is separable from racism none of this is se separable from sexism it's kind of you know it's it's such such a you know wicked problem anyway and i was thinking i don't know what to do because it's almost like the bigger something is the more it sucks meaning into it right is that meaning in writing comes so beautifully from the little things that then reach into the universal and these kind of like you know it's like kind of trying to make meaning out of a black hole it just you know that that 
it's so enormous and you can end up feeling that all you're doing is just throwing a few big splats of words around about this and then this and then this and then this and it 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 means less and less the larger your kind of you know the larger your sort of palette is as it were and anyway so I have really struggled with it because it's also like I can't not write about about the situation that, that we're in, because the responsibility rests very heavily on all of us, wherever, you know, wherever and whoever we are and whatever our position in life is. And then I was thinking, actually, properly, of course I can't write successfully about everything because I just would write rubbish and nobody would want to read it because it would be just kind of big fat splats of words all over the page. And and then I thought, properly what it is, is that we are collectively making a mosaic of our times and writing into our times. Each of us has got one tile. And the point is that we each make that tile into something that is as significant, as beautiful, as powerful, as important as possible. And don't worry that we can't each cover like the big, the everything. It's much more important to say kind of like, what is your tile? How are you responsible for your, um, not just, you know, one's life, but very specifically our lives today when they're kind of, you know, when there has never been a time where social is, well, I mean, yes, in little pockets, but there's never been a time of such social responsibility with such consequence for so many people so far into the future. But it's just your tile that you have to be responsible for. And in a sense, as soon as I started th thinking of it like that, I kind of felt like now I can write about it in a way that isn't big fat splats of words that nobody wants to read. <laughs> so that's what I would say to you is just, you know, Find your tile, work on that tile, and make that as significant and powerful as you possibly can. What will be our gift to the future? To the generations to come, what will be our defining feature? Polluted rivers, barren soil, plant life, animal life, insect and marine life all had less value than a barrel of oil. Deforestation, mass extinction, I'm sorry if this is too heavy to hear, but now more than ever it is imperative that we listen. How many harvests do we actually have left, and can we honestly tell our children's children that we tried our very best? What a lonely species we will be with quiet skies and empty seas. I can't imagine that our future ancestors will be pleased with this present. How foolish were they, they will say, those who turned away and now we must pay the price. Instead of facing the truth, they chose to close their eyes. Our children will be grieving for this ruined Eden that we are leaving them. And in the end, our silence will become the ultimate act of violence. So what will be our gift to the future, what will be inherited by those who come after.
During the remix, we witnessed three full moons, the summer solstice, and encouraged the practices of ceremony and ritual to connect us more deeply to the rhythms and patterns of the earth. Many of the crew built a deep entanglement practice with our more than human family in the places they call home. Becoming crew guide Mark Sears invited the cohort each week into a practice invitation. It's this time next week, we will be just approaching the longest day of the year in eight days time in, for those of us in the Northern hemisphere, which I think is everybody, but a couple of people, it will be the summer solstice. So with that in mind, we wondered if uh, we could invite us all to use that as an opportunity to uh, to play a little more. And I suppose while we're thinking of more indigenous or original ways of knowing, I think the times like the solstice actually matter. You know, they, they are times where we can start to notice the things that are happening out there in the more than human world and start to think about how they are mirrored in ourselves. And I like to think of the, the way that the light moves throughout the year as almost like a pendulum. And the pendulum has been swinging from the winter solstice and it's now almost at its end point. But if you watch a pendulum swing, there's that beautiful moment at the end of its swing where it almost for a second feels like it's paused. And I guess that's that point of that solstice. Um, and the word solstice literally means sun stands still. So I thought the invitation might be to just pay attention to that moment at the end of that upswing or downswing of that pendulum when the sun literally stands still and take some time, whether that's in our entanglement spots or whether it might mean it might mean getting up early and seeing a sunrise on the solstice or the sunset or even doing both, just taking some time as in the way that at the time that this sun is standing still, that we might just stand still in that moment and just notice what's coming up for us. It might be that this is a time to get up really, really early uh, and do a dawn chorus and actually sit and listen to the dawn chorus because it could be the last chance you get this year because um, you may know, of course, but the dawn chorus will start to fade within a week of the summer solstice because it's all triggered by the light and the pineal gland in the bird's eyes will pick up the fact that the, the light is changing and starting to shrink again. And it knows that it, the pendulum swing has begun to swing back and at the time the mating season is over. So the birds no longer need to, to sing to attract a mate. So now is the time if you want to hear that ancient ancient thing of the dawn chorus that sound that's been traveling around the world since the time of dinosaurs it's this is the time to do it it means getting up probably in the fours before five o'clock i think I, I did a dawn chorus sit out this weekend and i woke up at 4 25 so it's it's early but it's worth it um i really really it's really it's really worth it and i always feel the loss uh, when it stops sometime by the beginning of july and I wake up in early in the morning and the dawn chorus isn't there. It's a, a source of sadness. So maybe it's a dawn chorus thing that's drawing your attention. And maybe another invitation might be to do a little ceremony under this, the sun as it stands still and 
oftentimes it's fire ceremonies are associated with this time of year for good reason of course with the sun and it might be that you want to take a horror story a story that you're that you feel you're done with that's reached the end of its pendulum swing and the invitation might be to it could be as simple as writing down that horror story and burning it in the fire or it could be making something more elaborate that describes your relationship to that horror story and again ceremonially taking it to the fire and and burning it and it's this idea that we might then make space for new stories so the love story counterbalance to that horror story that we might um then what we might burn might be a this a love story that you feel emerging in you that you might consciously take that space that you've created by removing of the horror story and burning of the horror story that you might take an emerging love story and either literally or metaphorically or both holding it up into the light so that it might actually start to see the sort of burning sun the bright light of the solstice so releasing something of the old and then making space for this new shiny different emerging story to happen Eastkey Britain is a big wave surfer, scientist, author, artist and social activist. She joined us and invited us to consider the water stories on this earth, our relationships with wild waters, the waters within us and around us. And she asked us to investigate where even is my water and begin a new relationship from there. I'm going to read then from that moment where it's also referred to in surfing as the washing machine. Um, I open my eyes again and it is dark. The sound is different underwater, both louder and quieter. After a wave breaks, there's a kind of reverberation. The surface of the sea acts as a reflector, sending sound coming up from the sea back down again. My mind floats somewhere above the chaos, allowing my body to soften. And for a moment, it feels like I am water. I am part of this wave of energy. Like a frond of kelp swaying underwater, moving back and forth in rhythm to the breaking wave energy. The kelp appears supple, fluid. Its movement is effortless, and yet it holds fast to the reef and isn't ripped away. I let my body get pushed down a little deeper without pushing against the force this time. Down deeper, it is quiet and calmer. The turbulence rips through my hair as I grip a stalk of slippery kelp and allow my body to be moved like seaweed. Instead of feeling exhausted and beat up, I feel charged by the water. Feeling the wave action pulse through me. Time also feels different, measured in the feeling of compression in the lungs, the jumpiness of my diaphragm contracting, demanding I pull fresh, fresh oxygen into my lungs and sending small convulsions through my body. Over time and with training, I've learned to listen and understand these familiar bodily signals, when to act and when to be still. I tilt my head back and see the underwater storm clouds dissipate as a milky light penetrates the churned white water. Gathering my feet under me, I push off the reef, rising easily as my lungs expand once again and my ears gently pop. 
My face breaks the surface, and the first thing I notice is the hiss of the foamy water around me as trapped bubbles of air crackle and fizz, an important part of the air-sea gas exchange. The burst bubbles release droplets that form a light salty mist suspended over the surface of a wave. At first the saltiness stings my nose a little before I feel my lungs expanding, inhaling more deeply, feeling my body fill with fresh oxygen. This salty, misty air is full of negative ions. Oxygen ions produced from water molecules with an extra molecule attached. These are believed to alter our biochemistry and soothe our nervous system. Negative ions are found everywhere in nature, but are especially concentrated around breaking waves and waterfalls. They are the silent antidote to a life lived indoors, a space that is awash with positive ions wherever there are electronic devices, air conditioning, artificial lighting, office furniture and cell phones. Breaking free from the watery belly of the sea, all my senses are heightened. The water tastes sweet from the river flowing into the sea, colouring it golden brown like tea, and it feels much colder. For a moment, all the world is sky and water. I quickly look over my shoulder to check for another wave that might be about to land on me, but the ocean is calm. I tug on the leash still attached to my leg and pull my board to me. A sense of relief washes over me to feel its solidness under my body, keeping me afloat on the surface, allowing me to swiftly paddle myself out of the impact zone. But there is also a momentary and strange sense of separation from my full body immersion in the watery world below. Robert McFarlane writes about it in the context of landscapes and places held, hidden or buried beneath the earth. But the same could be said for seascapes. Below the surface of the water, there is an entire underworld. These wipeout moments, to borrow from poet David White, are an invitation to be borne away, reformed and revealed by the powerful flow. Softening into the force of the wave rather than resisting it counters any tendency for other emotional waves to overwhelm me from the inside. Waves of self-deception, self-doubt and the need to control the story of the world around me. This should not be mistaken for a passive act Meeting the wave in this wave in this way is an active embodied exchange, coming into deep contact with life, feeling the intelligence not only of my own flesh and blood, but also the aliveness and intelligence of the water. This intimate and visceral connection with water reminds me of the simplicity and power of these moments of encounter in nature, even the clear fleeting. Listening to the Spaceship Earth podcast with my dad, Dan Burgess. Over the three month journey, many beautiful stories, poems, essays, and even films emerged from the cohort as the practices developed and we encouraged ourselves to work more openly with our vulnerability and our not knowing. Entanglement. Entanglement is fluidity in grayscale, stuck in a gray area, a one-way or no-go area, in and out the picture to capture the moment that switches and passes like the wind or the clouds, silence out loud, silence the shout, breathing in deep and exhaling with your mouth closed, 
entanglement and twisted whistles of the tongue, feelings in motion held in for too long, knots and bolts that held on for too long, longing to, lo to let loose and get bruised by the truth or dares of life's groove. Think smooth but move jagged, silly times of smartwatches, not quite clocked it but it's clearly ticking, collector time second, second guessing and wasted mind, wasted mind approve, awaiting approval. When I have proved all, I am the proof fall. Fail proof, faint loose, paint truth, hate rules. Sack it. My dreams, vision and plan, yeah, I'm willing to back it. Ball rolling, my moving hand, yeah, I'm feeling to wrap it. See, my thoughts are heating the fan while yours seem to be deceiving, man. That's politicians, man. Laugh out loud while clocks run wild. Free range, wild cage by the fears of coming across deranged. Bridges over broken fences, built bricks of truth over defences. Street truths believe the lie. Peak news abuse the tribe. Mixed up the truth with lies. End game to lose or die. Thank you. Remembering. We are all animists by nature. Though most have disregarded this, always some of us remember resurrecting the angel's body, recalling that it needs to breathe, to fly to sacred springs and dreams. Memories are stored far deeper than the mere brain, which may falter or fully fail like all the body. The cells themselves remember, carrying ancestral visions from being to being to being. Often, I have appeared to myself as a heron, flying overhead at pivotal moments, inspiring hope. Other times, I have simply landed next to myself, my unyielding eye fixed on some distant imagination. All things contract and expand, burst into blossom, song, ecstasy, shrink into distance, dormancy, decay. Jellyfish pulsate like quasars, electrons quiver like frightened rabbits, a cosmos of interdependence. Sometimes transformation by degrees, at others rapid and confounding, yet those recollections persist through womb, tomb and cocoon, compelling us to eat, to breed, to grow, to die to rot, to feed. As we approached the end of the remix journey, as we came back towards the shore, we were incredibly excited and honoured to have the wonderful human Sophie Strand with us to bring the Remix 23 to a close. Sophie is a writer and author, and we believe one of the most courageous, generous, creative and important writers of these times we find ourselves in. Her work invites us to consider and pay attention to new relationships with life within us and around us. Something which feels so vital and alive when so much distraction, divisiveness and exhaustion exists within our modern cultural stories. Sophie's session with us was entitled Confessions of a Compost Heap, Narrative Dysbiosis, Self-Fermentation, and the power of rot.
I only think at the interface where I rub up against and reflex into other beings and other people. You know, all intelligence is collective. It happens in between us interstitially. So it's not so much me, it's whatever extended mind we are all assembling here today. So that's more of what I'm interested in than any kind of special thing I could perhaps tell you from some atomized individuality. Um, to kind of set us up inside of the compost heap, I'll offer a little bit of a personal um, reflection. So I am a writer. I'm mostly a lover. I'm not an expert. I approach things through the um, the journey of love, um, not expertise. Um, and I follow that love like a bee follows um, its desire into the flower, incidentally pollinating other things, but not really knowing what it's doing. So I just hope that if I follow my love, I will incidentally pollinate something. Um, and I also have a, you know, by the Europatriarchal medical um, paradigm have a incurable genetic illness that is degenerative and will kill me. Um, and it was a long, long, you know, meandering journey of misdiagnosis and mistreatment to get to the place where I even knew that. <laughs> um, so when the culture that, you know, where we are haunted by this almost Garden of Eden idea of a body that is whole, that is perfect. And if we are not slaving towards that whole body, optimizing ourselves currently, we're deviating. That in some ways that health has become what sin was during the time of Jesus, which is to miss the mark. That we must be constantly spending all our time, energy, money on proving that we want to become integrated and, heal and healed and whole. And so, of course, when I was finally diagnosed and told that I should just expect to rot and there was no cure, I was exiled from the dominant narratives. And I thought, what wholeness, what health is available to me? What does it look like to feel joy, to feel delicious and, and um, vital, even if I'm not necessarily following some narrative of, of optimization? And so I think... I'll begin with this idea, which is we live inside a paradigm that thinks that you can clean things up. And, and it's a paradigm of wholeness and purity, that there are impure things and there are pure things. There's an inside and an outside, and there are boundaries that are very clearly defined. <laughs> um, you know, in a traumatized body, we oftentimes create survival mechanisms that try to make us feel safe. And in a traumatized culture that has been deracinated from its web of relationality and kin for hundreds of years, we also have a kind of traumatized response culturally of trying to understand where the, what's safe, what's not safe. So it's created problems, but it's understandable why it develops. You know, I oftentimes say that you see this schism between mind and matter following the Bronze Age collapse, following a moment where collectively people knew genocide, dislocation, climatological events, drought, famine, that people were traumatized. It was too painful to be in your body. So then we see the rise of Platonism. We see the, the birth of this kind of abstracted idea of self as not being matterful. Um, and so I always like to honor the, that these are trauma responses, perhaps ancient, and then digested through our cultures over time and then taken to be the truth. Um, but this culture thinks that we can subtract things and make them pure. You know, we live in a culture of, an, of antibiotics. And I'm not talking about the drugs that are miraculous and often save lives and have saved mine, but it's a culture that believes that we can be against life, that we can, re we can, we can reduce life to clean up life, that we go, can go into a forest and clean up the brush 
and that will somehow reduce the amount of forest fires. Turns out it makes the forest fires much more likely. Um, and our ideas of ecosystem management and of physical management oftentimes leave us much more open to infringement and disease. So our ideas of management and purity oftentimes have the opposite effect of creating dysbiosis. And I lived, you know, a very physical reality of that, which is I, when I first got sick, I was misdiagnosed with Lyme disease. And I was treated with over 20 different courses of antibiotics, some intravenously. And so everything in my body, good or bad, was killed off many, many, many times over. And at the end of that, there was, there was no biome in my, my, in my gastrointestinal tract. And so the only, there was way too much open real estate for monologuing pathogens and yeasts. And then, of course, to go in and kill those would only leave more open real estate for another terrible being. You know, and so I reached this point. I was also doing detoxes. I was also involved. You know, when you're desperately sick, you'll turn to anything. And that's where a kind of spiritual bypassing new age spirituality is really, you know, charismatic and also dangerous, which is it tells you that you need to lift your vibration, that if you're sick, it's because there's something dark in you and you need to purify yourself. You need to eat less food. You need to take more detox teas, spend more money. You need to live cleaner. Um, and if you're sick, it's your fault. And so I went really deep into this purity modality, both in terms of intellectualism, in terms of medicine, and also um, more holistic new age um, modes of healing. And it, funnily enough, the more sterile my life got, the sicker I got. You know, we've shown that mice that are raised in sterile laboratories are more prone to schizophrenia, to diabetes, to obesity, to all different types of sicknesses. So it's dirt we need. It's not sterility. The more we kill off, the more space we give for these monologuing pathogens. I oftentimes say that, you know, dominator culture um, is a kind of monologuing pathogen, that colonialism comes in and it kills off all these other stories and it leaves up enough real estate in the narrative gastrointestinal tract for one monologuing pathogen to take over. So the answer is not to subtract, but to add. So I always want to invite people into a new paradigm of addition rather than subtraction. All our medical and psychological models are about diagnosis or analysis, creating knowledge by separating off from. That's literally, diagnosis means, uh, no, and analysis means to cut the ship from the harbor, to, to separate off from. And diagnosis means to create knowledge by separating from everything else. And I sometimes say that is not how resilient eco ecologies function, that, you know, an ecosystem is resilient to anthropogenic harm and climate change in as much as it has biodiversity and more nodes of connectivity. So how can we possibly think that we're going to achieve psychological or physical health by separating ourselves off from the culpability, the weirdness, the risk of being involved with other beings? Um, so I always say I work by addition, not subtraction. I am a compost tea. And so very slowly in my own life, I came to this, this new identification with, with how to approach trauma and illness and illegibility and waste, which is what can I else can I add onto the pile that makes it into good soil? And what if I don't look at my own life as being some kind of thing that needs to be perfected? What if I'm only just trying to make good enough soil, stories that are unfinished enough, but vital enough that they can provide soil for someone else to come in and grow something? So can we melt our ideas of individual achievement, individual wholeness and health, and also this idea that we can remove the illness, the poison or the toxin, 
Rather, can we plant so many things around it that some kind of anarchic, anarchic alchemy happens, some kind of fermentation process happens, whereby we get a you know, alcoholic beverage, or we get good soil, or we get some kind of kimchi? Can we create a more bacterially interesting narrative ecosystem? The beautiful alchemy of decay. To be broken down and then born again in a new way. So what are you willing to throw on the compost heap? Can you dig down deep and allow your old stories to die? Only to witness the rot and the decay feed new life? Death gives way to life, gives way to death, gives way to life. A dance between rot and ripe. Life gives way to death, gives way to life, gives way to death. Offer your notions of self to the worms and watch them break it down until there is none of you left. Decompose your bones and let them grow new futures. Once again returning home, once again becoming whole. As decay melts away your singular self, let every part of you feed this world. Let every part of you feed this world. The beautiful alchemy of decay. To be broken down and then born again in a new way. So, I hope you enjoyed this Remix audio artefact. If you're interested in joining us for the Remix 2024, do register your interest via the website, becomingcrew.com forward slash the remix. I want to give a big shout to all the Basecamp crew for making the Remix happen. Ever, Mark, Mark, Kamara, Seema and Simon. A big shout to Mark Delissa, whose poems you have heard throughout. Uh, Mark crafted these the day after each of our guest sessions. Uh, big love and gratitude to all our guests, Bio, Paddy, Sophie, Phoebe, Felipe, Iski and Jay. And a huge thanks to all the amazing crew who signed up to take part in the remix. We learned so much from all of you and the ways you all showed up, the ways you stepped in and all that you gave. We're excited to see where you go next. You heard a few audio offerings from some of the crew and these are credited in the show notes. Also, we'd like to say a massive thank you to Lankelly Chase for supporting the remix this year, for believing in what we are doing collectively. Um, we couldn't have done this without you, so thank you. I'm going to play out with uh, an audio offering. It's from the Stories for Life animation. It's from the edit we made for the Glastonbury Music Festival. But before I do that, I'd like to invite you into a little thought experiment. I want you to consider the stories that you carry, 
the stories that guide you through this life, that shape what you think and how you act with the world around you. The stories that define you. And then to consider whose stories are these? Are they yours? Or were they passed on to you by someone else? From someone else's imagination? These times are calling us urgently to let go of the stories that are dividing us as human beings and destroying life on this earth. And to carry and live by new stories. Stories that can help us to shape life-sustaining communities and cultures. Thanks for listening. Until next time, peace and out. If you've appreciated listening to this podcast, would you consider sharing it with a friend? or leaving us a rating or review via your podcast provider. It helps more people to find us and we'd be most grateful. This podcast is created in service to life for you. It takes time, funds and energy to make. If you'd like to contribute to the running costs, you can donate the price of a cuppa or a pint. Find the link on our website. This podcast wouldn't exist without the following crew. Charlie Shred, Audio Jedi. Seaman Home Burgess, Engine Room. Willow Burgess Jingles. Once upon a time, our ancestors acknowledged their intimate connection with the vast web of life. They lived in deep relationship with the more than human world, telling stories about nature as our family, our guardian, our guide. But then some of them imagined and created ways to control the natural world. This made them feel more powerful and superior to nature, separate from it. The more powerful they felt, the more disconnected from nature they became. And so they began to tell new stories about how nature is our slave, there to be captured and exploited. These stories spread and became common sense, making people feel separate, not only from nature, but from each other. But it doesn't have to go on like this. We can choose to live by different stories, love stories about interconnection and interdependence, love stories that measure success by well-being, the well-being of all life, including our own, love stories that will lead us to reconnect and regenerate our relationship with nature and each other. We all have the power to tell these stories, to once again acknowledge our intimate connection with the vast web of life. Many of us are already telling these stories, are you?